This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. Dennis Hurston, it is an absolute honor and privilege to have you as my guest. Thanks, Janice. And um, to be honest, we are pre-recording this show. We are sitting here on a lovely Cape afternoon. It's the day before the Jewish Literary Festival, which, as you know, um, Chai FM is thrilled to be partnering with this year. And... How does it feel to be in South Africa? How often do you come back to South Africa? I come every four or five years, although I don't usually plan it. It has to do with a book. The last one was a book of conversations with William Kempridge, and this is now for my 30-minute bar mitzvah. Yeah. And it, it seems to be fairly regular without my having planned it that way. Well, I know that there is an audience here, an audience of readers that are very excited that you are here. And your book, as you mentioned, My 30-Minute Bar Mitzvah, is doing great things. And it's it's had great readership. It's had great reviews. And I'm sure that you are quite excited about those reviews. And, and the book has been really well received. What did you expect when you set out to write the book? I expected to be writing something like 20 pages about an incident that had occurred to me and that I had already mentioned in my first book, The House Next Door to Africa. And uh, so I wrote those 20 pages or so with some difficulty, shall we say. The writing is always a pleasure for me. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to sit down and deal with and craft words, but I wasn't expecting this. In fact, I did that first little draft and then I was told by one of my fiercest critics, who happens to be my wife, that if, if I was going to be dealing with this subject, then I better go a bit more deeply than that in <laughs> italics. And so I did. That started in 2016 and it went on for another six years, off and on, not continuously. This book has been through more drafts than anything I have ever written before. And it has changed considerably, and it has dealt with issues that I needed to deal with and that I probably was avoiding, and that found I found that the book was leading me towards them. In fact, it is the book that has taken me this far both in terms of the writing and now here to South Africa. It is my means of transport. So you've already answered my next question, which was why, after your numerous previous books, which have all been, could I call them, odes to, to Africa in some way or another, why now in particular this memoir? So I would say I have written, I have written nine books in my own name in English. And... Um, Seven of them have been what I call memory books. They've all dealt with the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Those were complicated, mangled, unclear years, not only for me, but for many people around me, I think, both on a personal level, in terms of family, in terms of the suburb we lived in, in terms of Johannesburg, in terms of the politics, the social atmosphere of the country as a whole and the history. So and on all those levels, many, many things were unclear and unvoiced among the people I knew, among the writers I was reading, among my friends and family. 
and it has taken me all these years to pull at the threads and clarify in one way or another, from one angle or another, using one structure or another, what actually happened or what I experienced of what happened during that time. So you speak about Johannesburg. So one of the things that I love about your book, it's written so cleverly. One of the things that that local books do is mention places that are familiar, it names places that are familiar. Your book doesn't do that. Your book kind of circumnavigates the area where you grew up, the areas that you're talking about. You don't, it it circumnavigates the entire geography of of Johannesburg of the time, in fact. And um, it adds to, to the mystery that you create throughout this book, because in a way it is a type of mystery book. You know, the title itself, the 30-minute bar mitzvah, or 30-minute bar mitzvah, you know, the reader starts off going, well, why was it a 30-minute bar mitzvah? What happened? When? Where? And it's, it's a mystery that you thread and you, you, it's a tapestry that you weave throughout the book and you add to it by not mentioning names of places and suburbs and schools and, and it's actually really clever. And, I thought in the beginning, well, I want to know where, where was he? What schools did he go to? What, what area? What's he talking about? Where did he live? Because you, you talk about, you know, where your, your parents lived. You talk about where your grandparents lived and, and I'm, I'm, I want to know where was it? And, and you very deliberately exclude all those details. Was that deliberate? Maybe, you know, when I write deliberateness goes out the window. I'm writing in the dark, that is, in places that I can't see until I put words to them. Words are my lights as I advance in the dark. I had this central question, what actually did happen to me on my 13th birthday? It wasn't always clear to me that this was going to be the central axis, but that's what it turned out to be. There were many, many other questions, doubts, aspects of detail that I eliminated. There are very few ifs and perhapses and maybes. This is the story as I was experiencing it, as I was writing. Memory transforms experience all the time. And had I written this book 10 years ago, it would have been another kind of book. So I have eliminated any form of doubt that's telling the reader, this is how it happened except for the central doubt. What really did happen to me? I start to say it's a kind of a detective story. It is, but it's not only a mystery for the reader. It was a mystery for the writer too, and it continues to be. I put a certain kind of interpretation on it here and then put that interpretation into question. Doubt is one of my accompaniments as I'm writing because Certainty has to be deserved. As you're writing, you have to, you're fully inhabiting the words to reach a kind of certainty through all the doubts apart from this central one. And concerning the actual names of the places, I was hoping you were not going to ask me where they were because I'm not going to tell you. I I, I don't, I know. (laughs) It wasn't why I was asking. I was just, it it was just a a vehicle that you used um, throughout the book. In fact, as I remember now in writing this book, 
it was not so much the names of the places as the split between one kind of Johannesburg and another kind of Johannesburg, which equals also a split in my family. And that was what was preoccupying me, not the names, hoping obviously ultimately that the reader might follow me in my own preoccupations. Yes. Yes. Perhaps drawing their attention to something even more important than names of the places in Johannesburg. Yes. So you, you start to tell your story and the reader gets, gets really absorbed. Well, I became really absorbed and you get a sense of the boy who you were and you were a boy. One gets a sense that you were a boy who felt invisible, perhaps, and that things were happening around you and things were happening that you weren't perhaps aware of. You're the first person to mention that word invisible, and it's a key word for me. Yes, I was a solitary child. My brother was born almost eight years after me, my sister 12 years after me. I spent a lot of time alone in the long grass at the back of a house, looking at insects, ultimately collecting beetles, a witness to what was going on around me. Seeing and at the same time not really altogether wanting to be seen or perhaps one might say growing up in such a way that I wasn't really seen, particularly by my parents, both of whom were heavily preoccupied by their own paths. My mother as a doctor, my father as a physics lecturer and as a political activist. I was not the center of their lives in many ways. And uh, indeed, it was only when my father was arrested that this question of invisibility became a bigger one for me because I did not, although I was proud of him as a prisoner, I didn't really want to be different from anyone else. So I wanted to melt into the landscape. And the issue of invisibility was important to me. Yes, I didn't want to stick out. That's one aspect of it anyway. I'm a natural witness. Your father, he he turned his back on his religion. And politics was, would you say it was like a religion to him? Yes, except that he refused the dogmas of the communists and the dogmas of the African National Congress to go off on his own as a Trotskyist. He was what one person called a one-man revolution. You could say that it's substituted for his Jewishness, yes, or that he applied the Jewish principle of accepting all other people as full humans, which was not what was happening under apartheid, and pursued the need for that principle in the by applying a Jewish precept, but still turning his back on his own Jewish past and his own Jewish, above all, his Jewish father. And that the, the, the split between him and his father was also equal to the split between him and Jewishness and his turning towards other ways of acting in the world, yes. But while he adopted um, politics, he didn't, bring that necessarily into his family because you weren't really aware politically of what was happening. He didn't share that with you. And while your mother was obviously aware of what was happening, you were not. I mean, whether he felt you were too young or that you didn't need to know, 
you were unaware of what he was involved with. You were unaware of what was happening in the country politically at the time. Well, I was eight when the massacre occurred in Sharpville. And I remember very clearly going with my father to visit two people who turned out to be leading lights in the underground political movement against the apartheid state. But I didn't know that. I didn't know exactly what he was doing. I was, I repeat, only eight years old. But I think that I was present at the beginning of a discussion before once again the door was closed on me and I was obviously not being included at that age. But I still think that I absorbed something of the anxiety and the urgency of the moment into my body and lived with that kind of physical knowledge without intellectually really being able to understand. Even until the age of almost 13 when he was arrested, I still didn't fully appreciate what was going on. I knew, though, for example, that the door to our passage had to be closed when he was having meetings because our telephone was bugged. So I had certain clues, if you like. And perhaps another child in my position might have started earlier, far earlier than I did, to put two and two together. But I'm not really a political animal myself. I still do not play a political game. And I was interested in other things as well. It wasn't only that he excluded me. It's also that my attention was elsewhere. Because as children, we don't really, you know, we, we don't really believe that our parents have their own, you know, <laughs> you know, we, we're very self-involved. Children are self-involved, I suppose. I knew that my parents had other lives. I was spent a lot of time, for example, at my father's parents' home, my grandfather Joe and my grandmother Lily, because they were doing other things. I knew that very well. But I also knew that I shouldn't ask questions. Uh, not of my mother, who was quite distant from me, who had spent my early years as a medical student and then as a young doctor. And my father, in political terms, no, he could help me with my stamp collection. He could help me make a puppet of a French artist, but I wasn't going to turn around and say, dad, what are you doing <laughs> against this horrible situation in apartheid? In fact, you know, even the idea of verbalizing that would have been far from me. I was highly aware nonetheless that there was a lot of humiliation and inhumanity around us. And that partly through him, speaking to me. So that was that was actually my next question. That, that did you ever think you know, you, you're saying you knew not to ask questions. Yes, yes. But would you even have known what questions to ask if you had thought to ask questions or if you wanted to ask questions? That's a question I can't I can't really answer you, you know. I don't know. We grow up with our parents and that's how life is. That's how your father is. He has certain kind of face and certain kinds of habits and ways of eating and walking and talking and breathing. And that's your father. Same for your mother, those characteristics. So um, that was how it was. Once in a while, I'd sit down at a table and there'd be a black person eating with us. I never saw a black person eating at a table, any other table than ours. It didn't happen very often, but it did happen. Our neighbor came into our house, a young boy, 
when I was quite small and he called our gardener using the word boy and my father went into a red-faced rage at him for calling this man a boy. I didn't ever see another man, another father, another white father saying that. So these were all moments of realization. But again, that was how it was. My father was capable of getting into a huge rage over something like that. And I knew to be, there's one reason why I had to be very careful of him. Uh, but no, I didn't ask big questions about apartheid. We were just, we were South Africans growing up in the comfortable northern English speaking white suburbs of Johannesburg. And, uh, but there were questions. There were police who came down the road in a van and arrested men for not having a pass. And I had a strong memory engraved in my mind of the, their hands against the, the wire at the back of the van as they were driven off. And these, there were obviously more questions behind things like that, but there was at the same time, I think an innate sense of injustice. And also an acceptance in me, that was how things were. And I'm talking of myself as a boy. Of course, yes. when I, as I became a student, I had a slightly different reaction right. to all of that. Yeah, yeah. The catalyst in all this was your daughter, Anna. The catalyst in the writing of the book, yes, yes, yes definitely. My beautiful young daughter. <laughs> Who informed you very politely and with no argument, that she was going to have a bat mitzvah. I want to say something about a central contradiction in my life. I don't follow the religious Jewish way of going about things from day to day and the high holidays, etc. I see them, I understand them, but I do not follow the religious way of celebrating these events. On the other hand, I am a ritualist. I believe and have believed since I was a relatively young adult that above all the rites of passage, that is birth, puberty, marriage, and death should be acknowledged and in the relevant case celebrated by groups of people who get together, say, important words, share food, sing songs, go through a ritual of some kind or another to mark the different important stages of life. I was in a state of wonder when I saw a particular man, Oded Haddad, in Paris celebrating the bat mitzvah of a girl who was in fact my goddaughter, because we use that term, yes. goddaughter. And he was celebrating her bat mitzvah or helping her to celebrate it in a group of children of her age in a secular manner, a secular but meaningful. And when I say meaningful, I mean among the, in, with, in the prep, in preparing this ceremony, among the events that he organized were to invite the grandparents to come and speak about some Jewish experience of theirs, which in this case included the Holocaust and also the expulsion of Jewish people from North Africa when these countries, Tunisia, uh, above all Algeria, got its independence. But France decolonized or left Tunisia and Morocco and Algeria. 
That was one kind of event. Another kind of event, he got the families of the children to get together and discuss various aspects of some of the stories of the Old Testament in French, which was the language we were all speaking. He got the most importantly, he got the children to choose passages from the Old Testament, which they would read, which they would comment on in terms of their own lives and the meaning that they could extract from these passages. And in my daughter's case, it was Abraham and Isaac, which he applied to the relationship between me and my father and told me, not politely, that I, A, that uh, my father should not have deserted his family and gone to prison and be that I would not do that, would I, said she intuitively and instructively. Those are just some of the things that were went into this bat mitzvah, and I was delighted to participate and give our daughter, as my wife did, some significant objects from out of our past that would relate to the ceremony. My son also went through a bar mitzvah with the same person. So it was not their insistence on having these ceremonies that was in any way contrary to my own sense of how things should happen. What was difficult is what I've just told you, was that my daughter said to me while preparing her bat mitzvah, that is in coming to this, in my eyes, rather premature maturity at the age of not yet 12, that she understood something essential of what I had gone through and hoped and even demanded that she should not go through the same thing. That was critically important to me at the time and critically important in the writing of the book. Yes. So, which leads me to another question. What was one of the most challenging aspects of writing the book? Actually, one of my discoveries in writing this book occurred after I showed it the manuscript to a friend of ours. It was quite far in the writing of the book. It was 2019. I showed her the manuscript thinking it was just about ready for publication and hoping perhaps for even, who knows, a tiny smattering of praise. After a few days, she came back to me and she said, "Um, what is this book about? That is the most astounding and difficult criticism I have ever had in anything I have written, because for me it was perfectly clear what this book was about, wasn't it? Absolutely. However, the manuscript changed considerably after that, because what I came to realize was, this book is about a traumatic event in my life, and I came to realize that if one isn't clear about trauma, if one doesn't tell oneself that that is what happened, if one doesn't let it out of the bag for oneself and write it down clearly, then it is capable or the results of trauma are capable of invading all of your life. It's like trying to hold a ball down underwater. It will bounce out somewhere else. And this book was too full of too many other events and had lost its focus. And I am eternally grateful to that person for that criticism. That was the most difficult moment for me in the writing of this book because I had to understand what it was really about. And I hope now that for the reader it is clear, it seems to be for you. Yes, it was, it was very, <laughs> it was very clear to me. Yeah. 
certain other aspects really stood out for me. One of which was that you said you will never be an ex-South African. Yes, I will never be an ex-South African, just as I will never be an ex-father or, I hope, an ex-husband or even slightly an ex-Frenchman, maybe 5% of me. Never be an ex-Jew. Take on all the multiple aspects of my identity the ones that count, they are with me and they will continue to be with me. I want to affirm, I do affirm all of them. Yes, and now it has been nearly 50 years since we left the country after my father's release, nine and a half years after he went into jail, and this feels like a deep return. And though it's not the first time I've come back, and one reason I think why it feels like that is precisely because of the depth that I hope I've reached in writing this book, and that I'm bringing back. I'm bringing back now to South Africa the story that I could not tell when I left. And when I left, I felt mute. I felt like I had a voice, but I couldn't speak it. And it's taken all these years to find it in different ways across all the memory books. And then this one, which is, for me, the fundamental one behind the others. And I imagine that because of that, the reception of this book and the way it's been received has been vastly different to the way your other books have been received. I've had lots of good feedback on the part of people, including critics, of other books of mine, notably The House Next Door to Africa, my first one, which got a lot of press uh, a lot of, I received a lot of letters after writing that book. And then even more, uh, strongly, I remember King Kong the Boxer because it took on a vast array of memory. It noted them, noted down many memories of that time, the 50s, 60s, early 70s in South Africa, precisely at a time here when people were beginning just to slightly be disillusioned some years after Mandela's arrival in power. So what at that point was an act of mourning for my father turned plugged into a certain nostalgia here, particularly for a white readership, but not only about those early years when I'd grown up here. But this book, it's true, has I'm beginning to feel a different kind of response, including from you and the lovely review that you wrote, that um, yeah, people are asking me questions about identity and trauma and ancestry and uh, the political situation, the father-son relationship, which are all raised in this book. And yes, the, 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 there is, shall we say, to use the word again, a deeper dialogue going on about this book than any of my previous ones. Yes. Just briefly, because we don't have a lot of time left. Obviously, the book is about about the father-son relationship, as as you've said. What about the relationship with your mother? My mother took a back seat in my relationship with my father while I was growing up. As I told you, she was a medical student and then a young doctor. My mother is now 96 years old. She has what we think is Alzheimer's, and she has never been so loving and so lovable. So I'm writing about her now. Oh, wow. So that's the... The missing piece, if you like, yeah, but the missing piece was missing in my experience, not only in the book. So even though you say she, you think she has Alzheimer's, she knows about this book and she does. I've read her extracts of it. Yes. And how does she feel about it? 
she's amazed that I can remember so much. And she, she, for her, I couldn't be inventing a completely different life. I'm not sure if she would know any it's better. A brand new story. Brand new story. Mm. Oh wow, but amazing that she mm. is, um, still here and able to yes. share it. Yes, she has. She has. Yes. And she thinks that the title is an absolute chutzpah that I should be calling a book, my 30 minute bar mitzvah, because, you know, we were really taught not to come out publicly to people who weren't Jewish about being Jewish. Here I am. I've come right out of the closet. I'm Jewish. <laughs> oh, that's her biggest takeaway from all of this. It's <laughs> actually funny. Dennis Hurston, thank you so, so much for giving me your time. Really, it's so appreciated. It's, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I have, Janice. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I hope my listener enjoys this interview as much as we have. Thank you so, so much. Thanks.